So what are we studying this morning? Uh, we're going to be back to 2 Samuel. It's our second week in 2 Samuel. And if you've got your Bible, you might as well go ahead and flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 1 this morning. Uh, but before we jump into our text, uh, there's going to be a number of things we, we need to tackle before we, we get into that. Um, but specifically, one thing we want to talk about is our setting. What's happened just before this text and, and at the end of 1 Samuel um, that's leading up to our text? Well, well, the end of 1 Samuel, just before our text for last week, we saw that Saul had been killed. Philistines were fighting God's people. Philistines were trying to claim a part of the promised land. As the Philistines were closing in on Saul, we, we saw a tragic end to King Saul as Saul killed himself. And then as we began 2 Samuel 1, we really saw the aftermath as to what happened following the, the, the killing of King Saul. Um, we saw a Philistine come, and he, he claims to have killed Saul, which wasn't true, but thinking he would get on the good graces of, uh, of a future king, future King David. Um, but, but King David, being faithful to God's anointed king, being faithful to Saul's house, he, he executes this Philistine, and then he laments the death of King Saul and how it, is, it has harmed God's people. But, but with the loss of this king, with the loss of King Saul, with no anointed king on the throne, the question makes us ask and long for as we come to this passage, when will God establish his promised king? What we see for Israel, the kingdom is devastated. Israel just got hit by its proverbial truck. I mean, they, they just got knocked off their feet. They are stunned. The king is dead. King Saul is dead. When will God establish his promised king? It's important for us to know that this question isn't simply one that, that raises tension and something that, that we ask as we come to this text. It's something that we ask as we look over our own very lives as well. When will God establish his promised king, King Jesus? It's not just a political question or about a worldly king. Many of the, the issues in our lives, much of the junk in our lives makes, makes us ask this same question as well. For, for example, maybe for some of us, it's our marriage that makes us ask this question. And for some of us, the pain becomes all too real first thing in the morning. Think about it. The alarm sounds, you, you sit up in your bed. For, mo for many of us, the pain is, is real right there. There's no one beside you. The person that you're married to has chosen once again to sleep out on the, on the couch, reminding you of the pain that's true in your marriage. You think, we don't laugh like we used to. We don't talk like we used to. When, when we do talk, it's, it's bitterness, it's anger, it's arguing. They don't feel like our spouses anymore. They feel like our roommates. And for many of us, this makes our, our lives feel out of control. Our, our lives feel like a mess. And, and it makes us long for the coming of King Jesus who will restore our broken world. And we ask ourselves, when will God send his promised king? When will his king restore creation? When will the, the king do away with sin and brokenness in our world? We feel this chaos with parenting. We feel this chaos with job struggles. 
We feel this chaos as we examine the, the sin that, that is at war within our hearts and lives. And we long for the King. Come, Lord Jesus. Return as King. King Jesus, fix our broken creation. Restore our world. When will God establish His promised King? And here's going to be our big idea for this morning as we're looking at 2 Samuel 2 to 5. We're going to see this, that despite the chaos, God will unite his people under his promised king. Despite the chaos, God will unite his people under his promised king. Some of you have come up and and talked to me about the the text that we're reading this morning. And and you've kind of got like this, like, what, what is going to happen this morning? As we read 2 Samuel chapter 2 to 5, you're like, man, man, this text is a hot mess. It is chaotic. It is troublesome. We see in this text slowly and progressively God removing this rival king and establishing this promised king. And in all of it, it is so chaotic. But despite this chaotic story, despite the mess, despite these issues, God is establishing his promised king, King David. And here's going to be the structure for our passage as we start to read in this. It's important for us to kind of orient ourselves as to, as to what's going on, especially if you read this passage later. But, but our passage for this morning is literally a 13-part chiasm. So I hope you did some stretchies like beforehand or you got yourself a little bit of a snack because we're going to be going long today, people. I'm talking like two-and-a-half-hour sermon. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be bad. So, And there's like three of us that are, that are excited about that and, and and i may be one of the three so it's two of you so uh i'm going to simplify things a bit this morning uh, uh i'm going to simplify it down into, into five parts if you're one of those that's interested in the 13 part chiasm you, you can uh look online at my manuscript that'll be posted i believe on monday and in the footnotes i'm going to include that that massive chiasm we're, we're not going to cover it all this morning i'm going to simplify it um, but, but this passage, it's a massive chiasm. It's such a big chiasm. And so for 99% of us, the question is, I've heard that word before, but, but what, is, what is a chiasm? And so quite simply, a chiasm is a story that's told in a pattern. So, so here's, the, here's the pattern for you. It's, it's A, B, C, D, E, and then E's the center of it. It's really the heart and core of it. And, and then it works itself backwards. D, C, B, A. That's how a a chiasm progresses. Or if you like analogies and you're kind of like me, we'll we'll just compare it to a sandwich. You've got, uh, you know, you got the hamburger, that cheeseburger, there's bread, there's the meat, and then we roll back around to the bread. There's that pattern. Bread, meat, bread, A, B, A. And for this one, it's A, B, C, D. You know, it keeps going up and then it's a 13-part chiasm. It's a really long one. Um, but we'll simplify things this morning into five distinct parts. And as we're looking at this chiasm, as we simplify this chiasm, we're going to pay really close attention to really three parts. Um, we're going we're to pay attention to parts one and parts five, so kind of, kind of the buns of this passage, if you will. And then we're going to pay attention to really part three, really the meat of this chiastic cheeseburger as well. That's where we'll pay uh, most attention to and as we're looking at this chiasm, there's really three questions that I'm going to structure my sermon around. So that's the structure for the text, the chiasm. We're going to do it in five parts. Here's the structure for my sermon, to, to try to simplify things and, and to pull the chaos together, because it's a big passage. There's really three questions I'm going to be asking. 
One is, who are the main characters in this passage? Who are the, the, the main guys that are involved in this passage? And I won't really even be able to get to all of them. N- number two, what, what are those five parts of the passage, particularly focusing on three of them in, in our chasm? And number three, what does this text mean for us? What, what are the ways that this text applies to us? So we'll have a couple of ways that this text is relevant for our lives today. So that's going to be what, what I'll cover in my sermon. Characters. Five parts of this passage focusing on beginning, end, and then middle. And then the truths that there are for us, the ways in which this passage means something for us. So we're, we're going to read that. So, so flip over page 255 on your pew Bible. Um, and we're going, to read, we're going to read the buns. We're going to read the meat of this passage. And we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And, and would you stand if you are able for the reading of God's word? Okay, we'll start with bun number one, part number one of this passage, 2 Samuel 2, 1 to 4. It says this, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Okay, so that's, that's bun, that's part one. We're going to skip part two, and we're going to read uh, the, the meat. We're going to read part three. It's in Second Samuel chapter three, and we're going to read verses one to five. Chapter three, verses one to five. Starting in verse one, it says this, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, Ephahinoam of Jezreel. And his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Jeshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David at Hebron. Okay, we're going to skip some more toppings. We're going to go over to the last bun, part five of this passage. Second Samuel chapter five. So we did beginning of chapter one, beginning of chapter three. Now we're going to go beginning of chapter five, verses one to five. It says this. Then all of the tribes of, of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, before we we jump into our passage, before we jump into all of the chaos, the civil war, uh, let's get a look at at the the two sides, the way in which this country is divided. Let's look at side A and side B and see who the characters are 
are that are involved with it. And if you're if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write write names because we're going to come back to these names, and it's important for us to get oriented to these names in this passage. But but the the first house, Saul is dead, but we're going to look at his house, those that are involved in his house, and we see in this passage the house of Saul, the king who has just died. His house is being demoed in this passage. The wrecking ball is here. The bulldozers are approaching. And let's see who all is involved in King Saul's house. The first character in King Saul's house is a man by the name of King Ishbosheth. King Ishbosheth. Who is King Ishbosheth? He is Saul's youngest son, the youngest son of King Saul. And he is a weak king. He's got no power. He's got no control. He's really under the control of the next guy we're going to talk about, Abner. But King Ishbosheth, he is the first main character in Saul's house. And this is a threat to God's promised king. He's in opposition to David being king of all Israel. King Ishbosheth is a threat to David. The second character in Saul's house, remember these are opponents to King David, is Abner. We've heard that name before as we've gone through the story of David, but, but, but who is Abner? It's important for us to know that Abner is Saul's cousin. Abner commanded Saul's army, and now Abner commands King, King Ishbosheth's army. And Abner thinks himself to be a real powerful dude. He's thinking, hey, hey I am the goat. I, I am the head honcho. I am the force to be reckoned with. Abner wants to call the shots on who is king, and he thinks he is in charge. Abner is the second main character in King Saul's house, and once again, he's a powerful man. He is a threat to David's future promised kingship. And it's important for us to know, just to see where the house of Saul is located. You want to pay attention to that, because it really illustrates well what is happening in this passage. So we haven't gotten to read the name yet because it was a part of the passage that we had to fly over and skip over in our reading because there was just so much. But but King Saul's house with Ishbosheth, King Saul's house with Abner, it's located in a town called Manhaim. Manhaim. So so what's important about Manhaim? Why is that a critical thing for us to know about his location? Well, it's located in 2.8 is the first instance of it. And I would, I would find, if I were you, I'd find Manhaim in, in chapter 2, verse 8. I'd underline that in your Bible. I, I might write next to it, two camps. Because the, the word it literally means two camps. So, so what's important that King Saul's house, south, with, with Ishbosheth and Abner, what's important for it, to, for it to be located at this place called two camps? But what's symbolic as to what's happening in this passage, uh, Saul's house is dividing Israel into two camps. It is tearing Israel apart. It is dividing Israel into two. This location, these two camps, Manha Naim, it represents a threat to the unity of God's people under God's promised king. Okay, so those are the characters in Saul's house. We've got Ishbosheth, we've got Abner, they're located at Manha Naim. So let's look at, at King David's house. Who are the ki- main characters in King David's house? Well, well, it's important for us to know overall, as Saul's house is being demolished, David's house is being built up. God is pouring the foundations. He's framing the building. He is establishing God's promised king. So let's see who are involved. 
But the first main character in David's house is King David himself. King David is the one that God promised would be king as a youth in 1 Samuel. When he was young, God said, you are going to be future king of all Israel. And we saw in David's life him serving King Saul. Saul opposed David as a youth and in his leadership under Saul and tried to kill David. But now King Saul is dead. And now it is time for God to establish David as king. But, but, but this makes us, us long for this. When will God establish his promised king? And David is the first main character in King David's house. The second one uh, being Joab. Joab's the second main character in King David's house. So let's remember, Saul has King Ishbosheth in Saul's house. Who, Saul's dead. He has King Ishbosheth. And, and then he has Abner as the leader of his army. King David's house has King David. And then Joab is the leader of King David's army. So, so as Abner is to Ishbosheth, Joab is to David. David is a power, or Joab is a powerful man as well. He's got the place of power and authority in leading King David's army. Joab also has a quick-footed brother named Asahel. We're not going to be able to pay much attention to that story, but, but Asahel's death is going to set up and create a great deal of trouble in our passage when Joab's brother Asahel is killed in our passage. But, but Joab is the second main character in David's house, and in our story, as, as, Saul, as Saul's son Ishbosheth is a threat, as Abner is a threat, so too uh, uh, Joab is going to be a threat as well. And where, where is David's house located? Like Saul's house was in Manhattan. Where is David's house? Well, it's important for us to note that his house is located in Hebron. Hebron. So I would find, once again, chapter 2, verse 3, and I would underline Hebron in your passage, and I would write next to Hebron the word unite. It means, it means something like unite. God's heart is to unite all of Israel under King David. God promised to unite Israel under King David, this promised king. But, but, but when will God remove Saul's house? And when will God unite his people under his promised king? Now for the text. We've looked at the characters. Let's take a look at this text in 2 Samuel chapters 2 to 5. The first thing we're going to see, part 1, we'll see this. Um, God is beginning to establish his promised king. And there we see that David listens to God. And is anointed as king of Judah. David listens to God and is anointed as king of Judah. We see in 2 verse 1, David seek the Lord. In 2 1, it says this, that David inquired of the Lord. You can imagine David saying, God, Saul is dead. God, the king has died. What should I do? Where should I go? God, you have said I will be king. What is next? We see David as a man who seeks the Lord as to his kingship. And David listens. He listens to God. He goes to Hebron. And we know that, that Hebron's name is symbolic. God's heart is to unite Israel there. But why else? There's actually more as to why God sends David to Hebron. Hebron is actually a critical location in God's larger story of the scriptures. For example, here's a few reasons why this location is important. We see it repeated in Genesis. In Genesis 18, we see that God, he appears to abraham in hebron and he tells abraham i am going to give you a son or also genesis 23 hebron is the very first of the promised land that god gives to abraham 
Or as well, in Genesis, we see that that all of the patriarchs are buried at Hebron. Abraham is buried at Hebron. Isaac is buried at Hebron. Jacob is buried at Hebron. What's the big deal about Hebron? It's saying here, by by God leading them to Hebron, that that David here is a part of God's mega story as to what God is doing in the scriptures. What God started in Genesis 12, where where God tells Abraham, hey, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you great. And you're going to you're going to bless the whole world through through me. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. That God, God is establishing David as a part of that mega story as to what God began at Genesis 12. That ultimately all points to his son, Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. David, God here is saying about David that he's a part of God's ongoing story that is going on in Hebron. Well, so how do the people of Judah respond? This is in the tribe of Judah that this is located. How do these people respond to David coming up to Hebron? Well, in chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, that they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So for many of us are, are new to church, this might be a little confusing. It's like, okay, is it done? Like he's king now, we're good to go. Is that, is that all that was required? Well, well, Judah is just one of the 12 tribes. So, so really it's, it's one tribe down, uh, 11 more tribes to go. But we, we see this progressive establishing of God's promised king. So, so in part one, we've seen that God establishes his king just a little as king of the tribe of Judah. But he's going to be king of all Israel. But, but as we progress to that destination, as we move forward on that journey, as he becomes uh, stronger and stronger, we're going to see, see threats to that happening. Threats to God's promise. And here's what we're going to see. A, a chaotic civil war threatens God's promised king. In chapter 2, verses 4 to 32, a chaotic civil war threatens God's promised king. So... What are the specific threats to God's plans for David? When, as God is establishing his promised king, what are some of the issues that creep up and arise? Well, we've talked about Abner once again, but, but, but Abner is a threat. Um, Abner takes King Ishbosheth. Abner takes the youngest son of Saul. And take a look at chapter 2, verse 9. Let's see what it says that, that Abner does. He, he, he makes, is the word there. He makes Ishbosheth king. Abner's thinking, I have the power, I have the authority, I have the control. And think about it. Who is King Ishbosheth listening to? He's listening to Abner. But, but remember what just happened. Who is King David listening to? He's listening to God. He inquires of the Lord and goes up on the Lord's instructions. King David has God on his side. But, but, but Abner is a threat. Abner is in opposition. And Ishbosheth is in opposition to God's plans and promises. We see how King Ishbosheth is too in the passage. In chapter 2, verse 9, it says this that Ishbosheth is made king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all of Israel. Now, now once again, King David, he's just king of one tribe. But, but Ishbosheth, he, he gets anointed king, made king by Abner over 11 tribes, and he is a threat to the unity of God's people under God's promised king. He's a threat to the people of God gathering under the promised king in submission. And in this section, we see as well, we've seen that Abner is a threat, Ishbosheth is a threat, but we'll also see that a civil war that's going on is a threat to King David being established as the promised king. So, so in this civil war, here's what we see. It's Judah versus 
the 11 tribes. It's King David's army versus King Ishbosheth's army. And this is a chaotic civil war. These are the passages that you read in your Bible and you're going, what is happening here? Why is this story here? I mean, there's this, there's this 12 on 12 uh, gladiatorial competition. So, so 12 men of Judah, uh, 12 men of the other 11 tribes, and they, they all are fighting one another and they all literally kill each other in this competition, tr- trying to see who's the true uh, tribe of Israel because it's 12 on 12 representing uh, all of Israel, but they, they all kill each other. It's chaotic. Or, or there's this scene where, where as Abner is running in the midst of all this fighting, you've got Asahel that's chasing him as well. And then, and then Abner suddenly stops and Asahel just runs into his spear, uh, killing himself. I, I mean, these are a couple of things that just, just illustrate that the chaos, the pain, the threats that are, that are happening within this civil war. And this civil war threatens David becoming king of all Israel. But, but what's the result? What happens? When the battle pauses, when the smoke clears, when things cool off, what do we find? Well, when the civil war takes a pause, we find that the Ishbosheth's army is getting decimated. In chapter 2, verses 30 and 31, it gives us some specific numbers as to what ha- what's happening. Chapter 2, 30 to 31, it says 19 of David's men are missing. You could underline that. It could help you follow along. But, but it says 360 of Abner's men are struck down. And so think about that, the math. What's the ratio for that? Like for every one of David's guys dies, uh, how many of, of Ishbosheth's guys are dying? And in my math, it's, it's about a 1 to 20 ratio about about for every one of david's men that that is missing or falls or dies there's 20 of abner's men 20 of ishbosheth's men that are dying that there is chaos in this passage but but in the chaos in the mess god is doing away with the house of saul and god is at work god is at work to unite the kingdom under the promised king that is david so, so let's see what God does next or wants us to t- tell us next about his establishment of his promised king. In part three, in the, the meat of this section, if you will, the very core and middle, we're going to see this, that the promised king grows strong, and that's in chapter three, verses one to five. Now, once again, what's important about chapter three, verses one to five? Three, one to five is really the, the, the core of the whole chiasm. Once again, the, the meat of the whole sandwich. And, and it really helps us to, to shed light and see what, what the whole of our section means in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this progression as to what is happening. It's critical to understand what God wants us to know. Well, so what is three, one to five saying? Uh, re, read chapter three, verse one. And really, this is a summary sentence in that section. It says this. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And I'd say this statement is really key to our our whole section. You could put a little star in that verse to really uh, illuminate as to what this whole section means in our passage. David is getting stronger. He's getting established. He is being built up. But what about Saul? Saul, his house is crumbling. The king is dead. Saul is dead and his house is deteriorating. It's termite infested. The wrecking wrecking ball is lining up. Things are about to get bulldozed. And we see that David's house is getting established. And at the heart of our whole passage, God God is weakening the house of Saul and establishing his promised king. 
But it's interesting, there's something else we learn about David in this passage. We, three, we see that the, the threat to David and his kingship, it's not just external. It's not just outside of David that there's a threat. It's also something within his house as well that is a massive threat to the kingship of David. Uh, take a look, it's, uh, um, it's in chapter 3, verse 2. Just look at some of the sons that are mentioned there. If you were in the original audience, as you're reading this, your, your eyes would have gotten really big. I mean, you, you, would have, you would have cringed as you read some of these names. Uh, God mentions Amnon, who tricks his sister, rapes his sister, and then nearly totally destroys David's family. It's a threat from within. We see Abnon mentioned, sorry, Absalom mentioned. Absalom, who, who murders his own brother, Absalom, who tries to overthrow King David and seize David's throne. It's a threat from within. Or, or Adonijah is another name that's mentioned, who takes advantage of his dying father and tries to see David's throne as well. What's the point of, of God mentioning these names about the house of Saul? Well, what's important for us to know that there, there's rot in David's house. There, there's structural issues. David's own house threatens unity under God's promised king. There's threats to unity both outside of David's house and inside as well. But, but despite the threats, despite the chaos, despite even David's own sons, we see God establishing his promised king. Okay, so back to the story. There's more issues for David. There's more threats for David. What's happening in, in part four of this passage? And there in part four, we're going to see more chaos. We're going to see two chaotic murders threaten God's promised king in chapter 3, verses 6 to 4, verses 12. So, so what are the murders there that threaten, threaten God's promised king? Well, there's two murders going on there that, that prove very, very chaotic in this passage. First, Abner's murder threatens God's promised king. Okay, so thinking about it, we're like, wait, isn't he the leader of Ishbosheth's army? And isn't he in Saul's house? So wouldn't that murder be a good thing? Well, well things are very chaotic in, in, with Abner in our passage. If we're on a road trip, I mean, there's like, there's like two hard right turns that are happening right here in this section of our, of our passage. Uh, we, we see as Abner is talking and communicating with King Ishbosheth, uh, he decides he's going to betray King Ishbosheth. He's going to betray the house of Saul. They get in a conflict. Ish, uh, Abner gets mad at the king, and he decides to portray King Ishbosheth. A- Abner decides, "Hey, I- I'm gonna House of Saul. See ya, sayonara, later, goodbye, adieu. Uh, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna make David king of all of Israel." And as you're reading the passage, this seems like great news. You're like, "Finally, God's promised king is going to be established." Abner, the the man of strength, the man of power, the man of authority, he is going to establish David as king of all Israel. But in the process of him doing this, Joab, who's the leader of David's army, he wants revenge. Remember how Abner had had killed Joab's brother Asahel earlier in the story? We had to do a little flyover of that, but I mentioned it. Um, Joab wants revenge because Abner killed his brother. Joab wants Abner dead, buried, six feet under. Joab wants Abner to bite the dust. So Joab murders Abner. In cold blood, Abner seemed to be the, the pathway that was opening up for God's promised king to be established, but now Abner is dead, and Joab threatens David's future as king. 
He's a threat to God's promised king, both the murder and the murderer. Will the kingdom ever be united under God's chosen king? Another murder that threatens David's kingship is King Ishbosheth's murder, threatening the promised king. With, with Abner, the leader of Ishbosheth's army gone, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, is vulnerable. He's a sitting duck, he's an easy target, he's exposed, he's without protection. And, and so in 2 Samuel 4, chapters, uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 4, verses 5 to 8, we, we see two men acting friendly, two, two men of Benjamin, these are men that, that, should be, that are kinsmen of Ishbosheth. They, they come into Ishbosheth's house, that they act like they're getting wheat, and then they stab Ishbosheth in the stomach, and once again, he is murdered in cold blood. King Ishbosheth is dead. But, but how are these things a threat? How, how are these things a threat to King David? Well, well a couple of things. Think about this. You, you, you murder the, the leader of the opposing army. The, the, why would they trust you? Why would they want, want to unite under you for murdering the, the leader of the opposing army? Or what happens with, with King Ishbosheth is that these two men, they, they literally bring the head to David. It's like, I mean, worst present ever, I would say. But, but, but bringing King Ishbosheth's head to David, it's a risk for more civil war because it looks like that David is the guilty man in the situation. That this, this could cause a break with the rest of Israel. This, this could set things on fire. This could, could blow up David's chances of being king of all of Israel. This could put an end to God's promised king. But, but how does David respond to these two murders? How does he respond? What does he do? In chapter 3, verses 31 to 39, we see David mourning the loss of Abner. Just as David mourns Saul, David mourns Abner. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, we see David execute the murderers. These men who brought David the head of King Ishbosheth, David determines to execute these men. David is trying to communicate with this. He's going, he's going I'm innocent. My hands are clean. My conscience is clear. I am above board. These murders are not my intention. David is trying to demonstrate a loyalty and a love for, for the house of Saul. He is not trying, he did not desire to bring about these murders of God's king. But, but could this bring an end to God's promise? Will David ever become king of Israel? Will Israel be united under David? And finally, part five, the, the last bun of this passage, we're going to see this, that David is anointed king of all Israel before the Lord. David is anointed king of all Israel before the Lord. So, so what, what makes the, the elders want to anoint David king over all Israel? Well, in this section, um, we, we saw once again that, that David showed himself faithful to Saul's house. And the, the elders come before David and they say two things to him as to why they want him to be king. The people of Israel say this. They say, first, we're family. We're blood. We're one. In chapter 5, verse 1, they say this. Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. David, we're family. This is why we want you to be king over us. Second, the people of Israel say, David, you are promised by God. In chapter 5, verse 2, they, they quote when the Lord said this. The Lord said, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. David, God said that you would be king. David, God said that you would rule. 
So they make David king, and David at the end of our passage becomes king of all 12 tribes of Israel. Israel is united under their promised king, David. Okay, so what does this mean for us? What does this matter that God established his promised king? I want to see two ways that this, thing, this passage matters for us, two ways in which this is relevant for us. The first way that this is relevant for us is this, that the people of God are to be united under one king. Who's that king? Jesus. In our passage, so many, so many of God's people submitted to the wrong king. In our passage, we saw two rival kings, two kings that wanted to rule one nation. And one king, it seemed like he was to be the one that, that was to succeed. Think of all that King Ishbosheth had. And why God's people would want to align with them. King Ishbosheth had Abner. He had the power. King Ishbosheth was Saul's son. He was the heir apparent. King Ishbosheth had 11 tribes. David had one tribe. David didn't seem to be all that great of a choice for God. And God's people were divided. And so many of God's people submitted to this rival king, King Ishbosheth. And it's important for us to see this in the church. It's important for us to see this in our own lives. So often our hearts submit to a rival king. So often there is another king that our hearts give our allegiance to. Working with students, I can see this apparently in some specific way. That, that when it comes to student ministries, that, that our, our hearts as students are often choosing to submit to a rival king. And it's often silly things that divide students. And you can see it often in physical ways. Um, showing up to an event, showing up to ministry on a Sunday or Wednesday, you've got several people on one side of the room and maybe one person on the other side. And there's so many things that, that cause the, this division. There's so many things that cause the separation. Uh, and there's so many things that cause this lack of concern and love for one another. Um, that, that one student, they might not wear the right clothes they might not go to the right school. They might not be as smart as us. They might talk differently than us. They might be awkward socially. So often when it comes to students, silly things divide. Rival kings d divide. Students' hearts aren't often united under King Jesus. But what we see in students is often a little bit hidden, a little bit better among us as adults. We're better at hiding it, covering it up. But, but, uh, but don't secondary things divide us as well? Don't secondary things show that we are devoted to someone other than King Jesus? Mask or no mask, Democrat or Republican, educated or not, wealthy or not, what, what are the secondary things that divide us? What are our heart's rival kings that call the shots when it is King Jesus, Jesus that should unite us? Paul writes to address our unity in Philippians chapter 2 when he says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul calls us to, to one mind, to unity, to devotion to submission to our king. And he spells that out in this passage as well, that it's King Jesus we are to be in submission to, 
He finishes this section in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, writing this, that, that it's at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, that is Jesus, that the King, Jesus, the Messiah, he is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Paul here says that we are to be in unity as the people of God. We, we are to be of the same mind and same devotion as the people of God. And who is that in submission to that is in submission to King Jesus? King Jesus is to have no rivals. But it's important for us to reflect on this question. Who is the rival king that often interferes with our unity? Who is the rival king that often interferes with our people and our hearts? The second way that this passage applies to us is this, that despite the chaos, God will establish his promised king, King Jesus. So for a little review, how do we see a chaos in this passage as God establishes his king? Think of the chaos in this passage. King Ishbosheth, he's made a puppet king by Abner. Many of God's people are, are killed and decimated in this civil war. Joab's brother Asahel is killed and massive problems follow. Abner is murdered by Joab in cold blood. Ishbosheth is betrayed and murdered by his own tribe. There is so much chaos as you read this passage. But despite the chaos, despite the turmoil, despite all that's going on, God establishes his promised king. And isn't it true that our history is a mess? Isn't it true that, that, that our history seems chaotic? But God will establish Jesus at his second coming. We see wars, we see disease, we see political unrest, we see inflation, we see chaos, we see so much mess. But, but God will establish his promised king. We see this chaos not only externally, but internally as well. We feel this pain, this need for Jesus in our own lives. For, for some of us, we feel chaotic in our anxiety, in our depression, in our mental health. We feel helpless. There's a number of us in, in our church that we cry for no reason. Depression and anxiety haunt us. They're like chains. Chains around our neck, chains around our legs, chains around our, our lives, chains around our very souls. So often our lives feel like we have died and gone to hell. Our life is often more painful than death itself. And for some of us, we've maybe even thought of taking our own lives. Our depression and anxiety, what's going on internally, feels chaotic. But, but, but with the chaos externally, with the chaos internally, doesn't this make us long for him? Doesn't this make us long to see our beautiful king, for our beautiful king to return? Jesus has promised he will return. He will be established. He will reign. And the chaos shall be no more. Our eyes shall see the king. We will be united under King Jesus. The king shall wipe away every tear from our eyes. Come, Lord Jesus. Conclusion, I want to ask this question. Who is this king that we look to? 
who's the king that we unite under? Who is our promised king? It's King Jesus. And King Jesus is an altogether different kind of king. King Jesus lives a, a perfect life. There's nothing unfaithful and untrue in the life of King Jesus. As we see hints of David's fallenness in our passage, King Jesus is good. King Jesus is, is pure. King Jesus is beautiful. He is spotless. King Jesus lives a perfect life. And King Jesus dies. Is this a weakness of our king? That our king would die? Like, like Ishbosheth? Is this a weakness? No. His death is the very reason that he came. King Jesus came to die in our place and for our sins. King Jesus resurrects. He conquers Satan. He conquers sin. He conquers death. King Jesus ascends. Right now he is seated on his throne at the right hand of the Father. And King Jesus will return. He, he will judge those who have not submitted to his reign and rule as king. And he will welcome his subjects into eternal life. And why, why does King Jesus do all this? His perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Why does he do all this? So that we might bow our knee to him as king. So that we might trust him. So that by faith we might receive his mercy and, and grace and forgiveness of sins. But it's important for us to reflect on this question. Have I bowed my knee to King Jesus? Have I bowed my knee to him? Let's pray. God, your son is worthy of our worship. He, he is a better king than Saul, a better, a better king than David, and a better king than Solomon. He, he's the ruler of the kings of earth, Alpha and Omega, first and the last. He was dead, but is alive forevermore. He's faithful and true. Your son is king. Who is like him? Who is like him? He is to be worshipped. And God, we confess how we have treated your promised king. We've longed for other kings. We've longed for rival kings. For sex and money and control and power and pleasure, we have aligned our hearts with others. And God, we thank you that your king, King Jesus, that he was despised and rejected, we thank you that he carried our sorrows, that he was pierced, that he was crushed. We thank you that he did this for our transgressions, for our iniquities. We, we thank you that King Jesus did all this, that we might be accounted righteous. We thank you that King Jesus wore the crown of suffering that we deserve. God, help our hearts to be united under King Jesus. Make him the master of our affections. Would our hearts bow down to him as Lord? Would we desire to submit to Jesus as the head of all things? And help us to see that he is worthy of our love, heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's in the name of King Jesus that we pray. Amen.